Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. First Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you may have been able to tell by the portion of Scripture that we chose and the content of our prayer this morning, my aim and goal, which is to look at how Jesus Christ's resurrection proves that he is not only God and man, it also proves that he is the Lord over all time. What we sang in the final stanza of the, of the song, Crown Him with Many Crowns, we said to crown him the Lord of years, the potentate. That word is an old-fashioned word for a powerful, effectual ruler, the potentate of time, the creator of the rolling spheres. Why does that go rolling spheres? It goes because he created the sun and the moon to be the rulers over seasons and times. He is the one who is the one who marks out time. And so 
as we look at the resurrection this year, I wanted to focus, based on the readings that were selected in our lectionary, I wanted to focus on this aspect of the crucifixion. In prior years, we have looked at the resurrection in many ways, and surely the resurrection applies to and is given for our knowledge that Christ made a sufficient atonement and that he definitively, for all time, defeated death, not only for himself, but also holding out the promise one day for his people to be resurrected. We have studied that as believers, and that has warmed our hearts and it's formed our faith and it continues to be the defining reality of what we expect in the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not simply dying and going to heaven. It is that, as Job said, I know that in my flesh I will behold my Redeemer. That is our hope. It's not simply to go home and be with the Lord in spirit. It is one day we will be resurrected and we will receive glorified bodies and we will finally be people. This is what the Christian faith puts out is Jesus Christ's resurrection created a understanding of what it means to be truly human. It means that we will be delivered from our greatest enemy, death. And so for a church, for as a church, for years we have been looking at the resurrection on those grounds, that he was raised for our justification. Without his resurrection, as Paul teaches later in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 15, you would still be dead in your sins. Both the cross and coming out from the grave were necessary that we would be delivered from sin. And so this is the historic Christian faith, that Christ has delivered his people from sin and he has defeated their greatest enemy, death. However, this year, I want to look at a few different things. In prior years in Mark's gospel, we saw how the women were left speechless at the tomb. In verse 8, it simply says that they left and they were terribly afraid. And even though the angels had told them to go tell the disciples what had happened, Mark records, they told no one. And so the resurrection was seen that year as this amazing, startling event that no one anticipated. In the next year, in John's gospel, we saw how Jesus appeared to Mary as a gardener. Mary Magdalene was in the garden, and she mistakes Jesus for a gardener. And Christian art throughout the ages has depicted that event, and they draw Christ or they paint Christ with a a rake, or a hoe. The reason why she mistaked, mistook Christ for a gardener is he was looking like a gardener. I'm, I'm convinced from John's recording that he was doing garden-like things. And this is a, a parable or, or a symbolism to describe that Jesus is removing the thorns and the weeds from the world. That famous song which we sing, Joy to the World, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor... Thorns infest the ground. He makes his news to spread throughout the world as far as the curse is found. So, so this is what we've seen Christ as over and over again. In Luke's account, two years ago, we saw Luke's honesty. It was mentioned a few minutes ago, this notion of apologetics. One of those things we saw two years ago was a helpful phrase, which you don't have to remember, but if you want to, it's a wonderful phrase. It's called the criterion of embarrassment. And what it means is that usually when people want to record documents that emphasize their claims, they won't ever include things that would 
embarrass them. That's where it gets its name, criterion of embarrassment. One of the things that's interesting about the veracity or the truth of the Christian gospel accounts is that they include details which would be embarrassing in their culture. And the chief detail which would have been embarrassing is that the disciples relied on the testimony of women because in that culture, a woman was not considered a credible witness. Now, that sounds preposterous to us, but remember, we've had 2,000 years of Christendom affecting our culture. But in that day, it would have been preposterous. It would have been absolutely crazy to include in an already skeptical account or an account that would invite skepticism that we first heard about this when some women came and told us what happened. And so that actually establishes Luke's and the rest of the gospel writer's account that he emphasizes that these women were the first to arrive to the scene. And in fact, I think it was part of the Lord's design that he did that to take aim at that misogyny in the culture. Last year, we looked in John's gospel and we saw how Christ, when he announced his victory to Mary Magdalene, he uttered the words, he said to Mary Magdalene, but go and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my God and your God, my father and your father. And we had saw how Christ, as, as soon as he comes out from the tomb, has words of reconciliation and adoption on his lips for the very ones who had just so recently, days before, completely abandoned him. Remember, Christ, as he is arrested, all of his disciples flee. And from the gospel accounts, we know that John and Peter followed far behind and looked at the events from the periphery. And even though he was rejected by the nation and also rejected by his disciples, he comes out of the grave and no longer does he call, him, call them disciples. He doesn't just call them friends. He says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brothers that I'm coming and I'm going to ascend to your father and my father. He unifies himself to his brothers. So the resurrection does not just establish and prove that Jesus Christ is the God is the God man. It doesn't just prove that he is the mediator. It doesn't just prove that he's made sufficient atonement for sins and has delivered all those who trust in him for all time of all the guilt that they could ever incur. It doesn't just do that. It also establishes Jesus Christ as the Lord of time. I want to look this year at Christ's triumph, how it does not just hold a promise for that final day, but that promise has begun to ripple in time to every day and every week. So I want to look at four particular elements. When Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, he changed completely for all time the future of the world. You can think of it, if you've ever been a fan of those future movies, or for example, Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies, because you start to think of world timelines. And the resurrection completely changes where the world was going, and it does so immediately. It doesn't just affect where we're going one day. It begins to, as we see in the Gospels and the Epistles, it begins to change time immediately. Each week, therefore, the church gathers around the word and the table to receive his teaching and to eat with him, proclaiming his death until he returns. We're going to be looking at the gospels and the epistles this year, and then we'll finally get to 
an Old Testament portion of Scripture. So I want to look at how Mark records the single fact, the most probably the most important fact in the first two verses of Mark's account, how he describes that there was a new day at the resurrection. I want to look at Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15 as he describes the history of the gospel and how he connects the dots from that empty tomb to the faith of the Corinthians. It is a straight line connection. There's no, there's no reasoning or wrangling with ideas. Paul makes a direct connection, as you heard in the reading. Then I want to look at a very parallel passage in that same letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then finally, we'll end looking at a brief a brief portion of scripture from Isaiah. While Mark's account seems extremely simplistic, it actually is done so to emphasize important matters for our faith. The reason I reviewed what we have been looking at as a church each Easter for the last five years is because so many of the Gospels present the resurrection in wonderfully symbolic language. We talked about John, how he sees the Lord as a gardener and how he emphasizes Jesus' words, my father and your father, my God and your God. We've seen in Luke's gospel how he very clearly details the events surrounding the resurrection and then describes the history of the road to Emmaus. And when we read Mark's gospel, we read it and we think, Mark, you were, you were really wanting to finish this letter. It was not, it's, there's nothing flowery. There's nothing poetic really to be said about Mark's gospel. It's actually very succinct and it's very clear. And I think the reason why that is, is he wants to explain they were caught off guard. In verse 8, they, they tell no one, but he records and uses his words very carefully. It's, it's um, kind of like that old quote. I think it might have been Benjamin Franklin, but I don't remember. He signs a letter and he finishes it. I'm sorry that I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. The reason why that has become a quip is because it takes great, detail, great effort to synthesize and to boil down. It takes time and energy to invest and synthesize something down to the essentials. And Mark has done that for us in this account. The women, he records, arrive at the Lord's tomb to preserve his body. And from this, we can clearly imply they didn't expect him to be gone. You don't go to preserve a body that isn't dead anymore. Mark, Mark is showing us their purpose in the first two verses. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. It's very interesting in the Gospels how the Lord is anointed before his death, and he would have been anointed for his burial after his death. He doesn't need to be anointed anymore. Not only does Mark specify their motive, but two times, twice, he is extremely careful to highlight when this takes place. He not only gives us the day, but he gives us the hour. Having been crucified on the Passover before the Sabbath, Jesus was in the tomb on Friday. He was on, in the tomb on Saturday, what we call Saturday, or was called the Sabbath, and he was there on part of the next day. Many people get hung up on this and they hear Jesus say that he would be dead for three days and rise. And then they say, well, he wasn't dead for 72 hours. 
that's not an issue for the gospel writers. That's not an issue for Jesus. He didn't say, I would be dead for 72 hours. In the way that they counted days, it's very similar to how we count days, that part of a day includes the whole day. For example, if I was describing what I did on my weekend, I might include what I did Friday night as I was going to bed. And most of you in hearing that account wouldn't immediately accuse me of of being a false witness. It's just the way that we talk. And in fact, when we think about language, my wife and I get into these debates about whether or not it's the first year of someone's life or it should be the zeroth year of their life. Because I'm a computer scientist by trade. And, and that's one of the ways we count. We count from zero, zero, one, two. And so it really isn't their first year because they're not one year old is, is the way that I am tempted to think about it. Time is very fungible in a sense. However, even though that's true over the time of which Christ was dead, Mark is very precise. He records it in two different ways so that we would have no ability to misunderstand what he said. The women were prohibited from labor on the Sabbath and therefore they went as soon as they could. Christ was crucified on the Passover, the Sabbath took place after the Passover, and then after the Sabbath was over, they went when it was still very, very early in the morning. This is the way that Hebrews counted days. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, the pattern begins in the first chapter of our scriptures, there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so they go at the break of day. As soon as the sun is rising, they go to the tomb. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Mark highlights this day as the beginning of a new week. And in fact, all of the gospel writers record it as the first day of the week. This is very interesting because the gospel writers emphasize certain things in certain books and other things in different books. Yet all of them include this phrase, the first day of the week. Earlier in the prior chapter, as he's recording the crucifixion, Mark said concerning the time of Jesus at his death, in, verse, in uh, Mark 15, 33, it says, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from the sixth hour of the day, which would have been, I believe, 12 o'clock, until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., there was darkness for three hours. And so we can see where Mark is going. Mark then emphasizes the sun's rising, witnessing two important details, the historic timing or the when of what happened, but also making an implication suggesting what you could almost undeniably say is part of Mark's intention, a symbolic understanding of what's taking place, the spiritual significance of the resurrection. The darkness which covered the world at the Lord's death is broken in his rising. In fact, if you go and read John's gospel, he alludes to this everywhere. John's gospel is all about light and darkness. In the very first chapter, he says, the light was coming into the world. The darkness did not overpower it. The light was the life of men. Jesus then says, we must work while it is still day for night is coming when no one can work. And we know clearly he's speaking of the fact that he will be killed and then his public ministry will be ended. We must work while there is still a time of day. 
Isaiah said the same thing. Upon a people who dwell in deep darkness, a great light will shine on them. After the women enter the tomb, therefore, the angels instruct them to go and tell the disciples. I want you to see here that directly connected to the actual event of the resurrection is the immediate call to go and spread that news. That is, it is a one-to-one in Mark's recording of the event. Verse 6, he, the man, the angel at the tomb, said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the angels want them to witness. They, they want them to look with their eyes upon the details of what has taken place. They said, look here. He was here. He is no longer here. He is risen then the very next words out of their mouths are, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They're directly establishing a few, a few things that Christ actually rose. That the women were told to make sure of that fact for themselves as they were invited to become witnesses eyewitnesses, see where they have laid him. And then the very next words, go, therefore, and tell the disciples. Intimately connected in the scriptures are the witnessing of the event of Christ's resurrection and the immediate turning in speech, gospel speech, to go and spread that message. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." By this, Mark records how great this event, this fear that they had reveals the astounding nature of what took place. Have you ever had something happen to you that upon reflection after the fact, you are unable to believe that it took place? This happens often in trauma or in some sort of event that's too great or too terrible to reconcile with. For example, if someone gets in a car accident, immediately after that car accident, they might be in shock. Or if they win the lottery for a next few days, how is it possible that I won this, you know, stumbled on this great fortune? If you've never experienced this, be ready in life. There are certain events that will catch you so off guard, it is unable to be understood. And the fear or the excitement or the terror which fills your mind and heart at the light of what just happened to me will, will totally overwhelm your ability to speak or ability to act or ability to respond. This is what takes place here. These women are so caught off guard by the impossibility of what took place that they can't say anything. They're left quite literally speechless. The reason is, is that first Sunday, the greatest miracle that could ever have taken place took place. Jesus Christ, the one who died, taking upon himself the sins of the people, had been risen from the dead, vindicated by the Father, and risen to new life forever. And because he lives, he will continue to live forever and ever. The, the, the thinking process I think that these women were going through was this. Everyone we have ever heard about always dies and stays dead. We heard that story about Lazarus, but he died again. Maybe he hadn't died again at this point. But they knew he was just a regular person. They had just seen or had heard Jesus Christ was crucified. 
This is not a mere resuscitation. He didn't look like he was dead. Crucifixion was a very thorough process, a very bloody process. In the one account of resurrection from the dead in the Old Testament with with Elijah, it looks like the boy faints and is dead for a little bit. You can have faith if the person is dying and, and is about to be resuscitated. There's a little bit of faith for a few minutes that maybe he's not yet dead. Jesus had been dead for three days. They come into the tomb and he defeated the most horrific death possible, execution. This is why they're totally caught off guard and they're unable to reconcile what has taken place. He said he would rise and he did and they're totally caught off guard. Forty days, therefore, after the resurrection, Jesus instructed his disciples about four specific things. He connected his death, resurrection, the proclamation of the gospel, and the sending of the Spirit together. He instructed them to go to Jerusalem and to wait there. After the ascension, therefore, the disciples begin praying in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Ten days later, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And again, it's important to know that this is the first day of the week. Just as the law was given in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai the day after the Sabbath, so also Jesus sends the Holy Spirit upon his church who have gathered there in the upper room on the day after the Sabbath, the new week. From the very beginning, therefore, the church received this tradition as she experienced it and began to set apart the first day of the week as the Lord's day. The significance of this is directly connected. This is the unique day for corporate worship in the church, in the people of God. So common was this practice in their life together as a people that when John writes his revelation of Jesus Christ, in the very first chapter, he uses the phrase, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he knows perfectly all of my readers will know what I'm saying. This was such a received experience and a received tradition based on the resurrection and the sending of the spirit that that John just uses this phrase like he's He's not speaking. That isn't even the weird part of the, the book of Revelation. That's the plain part. And he uses it, and they, they understand what he's saying. Likewise, when Paul instructs the Corinthians to excommunicate the man, he uses a very similar phrase to John. He says that when I am with you in spirit, or when you are gathered and my spirit is with, present with you, then expel the immoral man. The reason why is because he knows that they are assembled in the name of Jesus. How are they going to sync up in time? It's because they're going to both be in spirit on the Lord's day, even though Paul's not in Corinth. In that same letter, he instructs the church, Paul instructs the church, to set aside money for the poor church in Jerusalem, and he says that they should do it on the first day of every week. The implication is that they do this as a church. There is someone gathering funds for the very poor church in Jerusalem, which had suffered extreme persecution, being near 
the, the heart of Judaizing teaching in the city of Jerusalem, and therefore all the Gentile churches, all the, all the Asian churches in Turkey and what, what is now called Turkey, all of them have a responsibility to send money, and he tells them to collect it on the first day of the week. This practice of the church of celebrating Christ's victory on a particular day had dramatic and very important cultural implications. At that time, the Roman culture had thoroughly enculturated their pagan myth into the practice of every day. And in fact, this has come down to us even in English. For example, Saturday is the day of Saturn. Sunday is the day of the sun. Monday is the day of the moon. And then at this point, because of our history as English people, it changes. Tuesday is a Norse god, Twer. Wednesday is, again, a Norse god, Woden. Thursday is a Norse god. You've even probably seen a movie about this one called Thor. Friday is similarly named, I forget. I think it's a Roman one. They had assigned each particular day to one of their gods. And this was their practice, that they had enculturated their pagan religion into the daily practice of the faith. And so when the Christians are taking this day and assigning it to the Lord's day, they're asserting Christ's power greater than any other of these pagan gods, these gods who are no gods at all. This is exactly what they do. They're trying to say that Jesus Christ has defeated death and the grave, and he's had total and complete victory. Therefore, they gather each week around the Lord's table to receive food and instruction, and they do this week by week. This is their pattern. This is their received tradition that all begins on that first Easter Sunday. Paul, therefore, announces this gospel of pardon that began to be spread as these women go and tell the disciples, and then the disciples receive the Spirit and begin to preach and teach. Paul receives an apostleship and then goes to the Corinthians and spreads that very same message of his triumph over death. Christ's message impacted the Corinthians, and it transformed them just as it did the rest of the Christian world. Paul then highlights this gospel tradition as a reception and a transmission of tradition. It's important that we begin as Christians to orient ourselves toward the word tradition in a healthy way. Many people say tradition is worthless. It is something bad. It is something dead. It's just formalism. But actually, the scriptures quite clearly teach that without the transmission of tradition, there would be no gospel at all. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. So in your mind, you can think of Paul here, and he's preaching to the Corinthians here. That gospel is the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Again, he's emphasizing that he as the preacher is giving them a message. Verse 3 then says, which we'll get to in just a second, Paul reminds his hearers of the fact of the crucifixion and resurrection, which has transformed and created the church. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So I want you to imagine a ladder. We have Paul here as a middle rung. He's transmitted the gospel to the Corinthians. And he gave to them what he himself received. 
There is a koinonia, a fellowship, a participation of the historic fact of the gospels which created Paul's preaching. Verse 4, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now, there's no periods in the original text. However, when the translators bring this forth into English, they think it's such a connected idea of Christ's death, resurrection, appearance to Peter, and appearance to the twelve that they put it in one sentence, that they're directly connected and directly related. For Paul, therefore, the retelling of Christ's defeat over death and the grave is intimately linked to that gospel transmission, that gospel preaching and teaching. Paul then continues establishing the most amazing event in human history. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Just as a side note, when we were talking about apologetics earlier, This idea that Jesus has appeared to 500 people and many of them went to their deaths asserting the truth of their claims has to be reckoned with. The idea that 500 people, that one man in 500 would not break rank even at the pain of death to persist a fraud is insanity. Believing that is illogical. The most likely explanation is that witnesses will turn over at the first sign of threat. In fact, that's why we use the, the law of perjury, is because if you, break, if you act as a false witness in, court, in a court of law, you yourself become susceptible to the very guilt that you're lying about in that court. That's, that's what perjury is. So Jesus appears to these 500 and then he appears to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul connects his road to Damascus experience where Jesus revealed himself to a continuing proof of the historicity of the resurrection. For Paul, therefore, there is a direct connection between Christ's resurrection and the belief of the Corinthians, and that direct connection is the veracity or the truth of the apostolic witness. Jesus was raised, and he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to 500 people, and then to James, and all the other apostles, and then to me as one untimely born. Therefore, I preach. That's what Paul is thinking. Verse 11, whether then it was I, I or they, so we preach and so you believed. If you've ever played a game as a kid or done one of those drawings where they want you to connect the dots, that's what Paul has just done on the gospel. How did the Corinthians believe? It's because Christ came out of the grave. And the reason they believe is because along that line, along those those lines, there are these dots of apostolic transmission of a tradition that they received. They saw the Lord and they communicated that. And as they have communicated that, that same truth holds sway. It does not change as it is transmitted. Therefore, without the historic resurrection, there could be no authentic preaching and no true belief. Indeed, it is the case there would be no reason for the church to gather to praise unless there was something praiseworthy which had taken place. The reason we sang with such joy this morning was because there's something joyful to sing about. 
and it's true. Therefore, earlier in that same letter, Paul used a very similar phrase when describing the transmission of the Eucharist meal. He writes to address errors in the Corinthian church about their eating of the meal, and he uses this phrase, when they came together as a church. Remember what we were talking about the Lord's Day and John's use in Revelation and Paul's use in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians? At this point in, John, in, in Paul's letter, it might be quite clearly assumed when they're coming together as a church, it's on the Lord's day. Just as Paul also received the gospel message and delivered it to the Corinthians, so also with this promise of the, the Lord's Supper or the, the teaching of communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Do you remember that latter? Here's Paul and he's preaching the gospel. He first receives the gospel and then he preaches it. He uses that exact same train of thought here. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. So the two sides of the same coin, which is our Lord's perfect work, is his death and his resurrection. And Paul uses the exact same style of speaking or exact same description of how that message has come to the Corinthians. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he uses that same language, not just about gospel preaching, but about what the Lord's Supper is, what the Eucharist is. Just as the Corinthians receive the gospel, therefore they have also received this tradition, this experience, this practice of the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper with the disciples, therefore, directly becomes the Lord's Supper. These are two phrases we use to describe the historic event, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And we usually keep these separated in our minds, don't we? What Paul does is he says, it's the same meal. I've given you a participation in this experience. I've communicated to you faithfully that which all of communion is. I gave to you what I received from the Lord. Verse 26, the next verse after describing the Lord's uh, Supper Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Clearly, the Lord's Supper is eaten on the Lord's day. This has always been the practice of the church. Now, some of you may say, well, that wasn't the practice of my church. And I would say, well, your church probably wasn't around that long. The reason I can boldly say that is that this has been the church's practice throughout the centuries. It has always been the case that wherever the church has gone, she has gathered on the Lord's day. And until very recently, it has always been the practice that she always took the Lord's Supper each week. That's why we do this as a church each week is because this is our received experience. Now, to be true, to be fair, some traditions are not worth keeping. That's why the Lord brought about a reformation. And oh, that he would continue that reformation even today. Nevertheless, there, we do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
as we know in this church, our babies are very precious. It is worth receiving good tradition. It is worth rejecting poor tradition. And the scriptures quite clearly teach this is a most excellent tradition. Because whenever we eat of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our participation at the table in just a few minutes is not just an experience of an individual participation in the Lord's death. It is true that we do eat his flesh, drink his blood. We, we become united to Christ by faith in some way that we cannot fully explain when we take the Lord's Supper. Just as baptism produces some beneficial effect, which is hard to describe and talk about, so also the Lord's Supper. It's not necessary that you understand exactly how it works. What is necessary is to understand the benefit of what the scriptures presented as. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. You're bringing about, as Jesus said, a remembrance of the perfection of his offering and of his sacrifice. That's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We eat on the Lord's day, remembering his death and resurrection until that final day, until he comes. The question I want to ask at this point is, what does Paul mean, until he comes? What, what does it mean that? Does it mean that we will just stop eating the Lord's Supper and that once he comes, we'll still have religious experiences or, or a life with God, but there won't be any eating? No, not at all. We won't stop proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, meaning that we won't stop remembering the Lord's death, but rather that there will be a much greater meal to take place. Matthew's gospel tells us that immediately after Christ passed the cup among his disciples, he then gave them a promise of a future meal. Verse 29 of Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's exactly what Paul is putting his finger on, that we're going to proclaim the Lord's death week in and week out as we gather as his body we're going to participate in his sacrifice in a spiritual sense. We will remember it until he comes. Why? Because Jesus promised there will be something extremely great. Indeed, Isaiah had prophesied of this already, of which Jesus had, of course, read and was referring to this feast that God is going to prepare for all of his people. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain, that is, in the house of the Lord, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Guess we're going to be drinking in heaven. <laughs> I, if you don't drink alcohol, I, I, I do love you. I, I'm, not trying, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to imply that you have any sort of, of bad faith. It, it's just that what Isaiah is saying, there's going to be a celebration. It's going to be worth it. We, we will have pers persevered for all time. There's going to be something to celebrate. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That is the best kind of wine. If you don't drink wine, I buy cheap wine. Uh, I buy wine that was two or three years old. The best wines are stored and it's, spent, it's prepared. You have to put it in a cool, dry place away from sunlight. You have to hold it at the right temperature for years. It's better with waiting. Of rich food full of marrow, that's fat. That is that's the best part of the, of the steak. Of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering 
that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is promising. I'm going to drink wine again with you, my beloved disciples. I'm going to die. I'm going to taste of death for you. I'm going to defeat that death, which Isaiah said covered all the peoples. And on that day that I return, I'm not only going to defeat death fully, as I'm about to defeat it in three days, I'm going to celebrate with you once again. And it'll be a never-ending party. Just as Jesus defeated death, he's going to swallow up death forever. That is the Christian hope. That is what we celebrate when we celebrate Easter, that just as Christ rose, so also when he returns, he will defeat death forever, and all those who put their hope in Christ will raise and be given glorified bodies, never to die again, just as our Lord will never die again. Nevertheless, as we eat that meal today, which we are about to come to the table and partake in, we should do it remembering what it's all about. You see, for us, the resurrection and the Lord's Supper are very disconnected. But I hope that as we've seen in the scriptures today, they are very directly connected. Just as much as we trust in the cross being effectual for us, so also we should trust in the resurrection. And Jesus and Paul's transmission of the gospel directly connects the two experiences. Therefore, as you come to the table today, come with a renewed understanding of just how significant, how precious, and how anticipatory this meal is. It is beyond important that we, it, th- this meal and what we do each week as we gather as the Lord's people on the Lord's day, it is not some simple trivial matter. It is not something that's worth skipping or worth missing. In fact, we have set a practice in our own married life. This is not a command from the Lord. As Paul said, the Lord doesn't say this, but I. We've set a practice that when we can, we want to be with God's people on the Lord's day, hopefully here. And wherever we are, we make a great effort to find a good and godly church wherever we're going. In fact, we have one time we almost canceled a vacation because of how bad our options were because of the city that we were going to. Nevertheless, it is important to remember what is taking place today. We have not simply gathered in Dayton, Ohio. We are gathering with the spirits of men made perfect, as Hebrews teaches us. As John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. You're not just, when you're doing Christian ministry, you're not just working with Deanna Perumala and Stephen Leopold and Jason Hale. You're working with Paul and Peter and James. This is the communion of the saints that we experience. We have a real fellowship in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a wonderful, wonderful privilege that we experience today. Ever since his gospel has been preached, his church has moved forward, taking ground in the culture day by day, inch by inch, week by week. And as they have gone, they have always proclaimed the Lord's death, not just in speech, but also in eating. Just as God's work in creation defined the weak, setting the rhythm for life, 
so also Jesus Christ's resurrection has defined the start of a new week. And as they began their week, as the church began their week, they first heard of his word and ate his, at his table only to be sent out afterwards to proclaim his death and resurrection in the larger culture until that final glorious day. Just as a cultural observation, why do you think it is that we rest on the weekends and work during the week? It's because Christ's victory over death has so formed the church and the church's teaching and practiced and lived out culture. That's what culture is. It's religion externalized. It has so formed and permeated every part of our society that the rest in Christ that believers have has now become a rest in time for the larger culture. This is how significant, this is why I say Christ is Lord over time because everything after the resurrection has completely changed forever. That's why we are able to rest today. That's why we are able to celebrate today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this meal that we are coming to. We thank you for the importance of this meal as you yourself established it, giving it as a sign to your disciples before you went to the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and his clear teaching and his explanation that he first received a tradition and that he transmitted that tradition to the Corinthian church. And Lord, we thank you that likewise the church throughout the ages has transmitted your word to us and your practices to us. We pray, Lord, as we come to this table, you would help us to not only trust in your great resurrection and in our future final resurrection, but that we would come to see the significance of what it is to be a part of your people and the glories and the privileges that attend with that membership. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified as we eat. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.